the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Well, welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Uh, we're back, and this is episode 229. Uh, I'm Paul Spain, and two guests with me tonight. I'm Brett Roberts. I'm Michelle Dickinson. Welcome along. Great to have you both here. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, Brett, maybe you can uh, fill listeners in where you fit into the, the world of technology and business in New Zealand. I've been doing technology things for a long time, but right now I work for an organisation called Callahan Innovation. Great. And Michelle? I am a nanotechnologist working at the University of Auckland, and I also have a charity called OMG Tech that teaches tech to kids. Thank you for that. And you've got a fair involvement in the tech world over the years, haven't you? <laughs> we, were, we were just chatting earlier about some of your uh, uh, clients before you, uh, before you moved to New Zealand. Well, they're still so my some, clients. Some so reasonably well-known technology yeah, firms. one or two. Um, so, well, let, let's jump in. Lot, lots to get through. Uh, first of all, Oculus Rift. Now... This technology is something that's been quite sort of fascinating to watch the development as we move into this world of augmented reality and virtual reality. Michelle, what's your what's your take on this technology and where, where it's going? It seems like uh, next year is the year where Oculus Rift make their product available broadly to the public. It seems to have been going on forever, doesn't it? I feel like I demoed it ages ago, and it's still not out. Um, I'm really excited about this technology. I'm not convinced Oculus Rift is the format that I want it in. It's big, it's bulky, but everybody has to start somewhere. So five years from now, I think we'll all be goofing around in really light headsets that can do this stuff. Yeah, I I would agree, and I don't think Oculus Rift will win the game. I don't. In Facebook Pay 2 bill, just a bit of chump change, you know, for it. but you know the uh, the stuff that Microsoft are doing with Hololens, the um, Magic Leap, you know, there and Which, there'll be others in the wings as well. I, I think you know this will be out next year, uh, and I, you know, I'd be very surprised if the others don't follow relatively shortly thereafter. There aren't going to be year, uh, you know years of gap in there, um, and it'll be all on next year or the year year after will be VR year. Cool. Yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm still curious because you know we saw what happened with uh, you know with Google Glass, which was something reasonably light, and yeah, that w- didn't really answer enough things for for it to be yeah ready for launch. Now with the the world of uh, augmented reality and virtual reality, it's it seems so many leaps further on. So we need that technology to sort of you know catch up and, and get to a point. And then I guess the question is, do you? Th- I mean, do you think this is going to come to that point where we would all wear it day to day, or is it going to be something you're going to wear in a particular context? Have you got any thoughts on oh, that? I'd wear it all the day, but that's just that's just me. <laughs> no, I think I mean it's great for training. You know, you think of all the industries that you could do training in, use it in schools to experience different places, travel. I mean, I yeah, I really think it'll blow up once it fits the form that's comfortable. Google Glass was great; it was light. It just wasn't functional enough, you know. Mm. So if they can cross these two things, reduce the size of Oculus Rift, go in a Google Glass sort of format, we're winning. Yeah, I, I, it'll be one of those things. There'll be usage scenarios we haven't even thought of yet for it um yeah are we all going to walk around with them 24 by 7 i i don't know we'll get there at some stage if they, they, if they look anything devices, like the hollow lens which is yeah. is kind of a futuristic-y thing i mean just imagine the world with everybody on the planet wearing one of those it's so sort of sci-fi um yeah it's it's crazy to to think about um so yeah i'm curious where that will go um now the nine dollar computer 
this we've heard about on uh, on Kickstarter uh, this week. Now we've obviously got lots of yeah, there, there are varying little mini devices out there at the moment that that we can buy from the Raspberry Pi and 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 so on. But nine bucks for a computer, that sounds kind of nuts. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, you know, all that stuff's trending towards zero and cost and infinite and capability. You know, it's just just amazing. And whether it's nine dollars or eight dollars fifty or nineteen dollars, really doesn't matter too much, I guess, unless you're mass producing things. But the the cool thing with it is it gets people hobbyists back in, and I think that's the cool thing. You know, getting people making stuff on their kitchen table, um, and if they're breaking stuff, it really doesn't matter. It's a nine dollar computer, nine nine hundred or nine thousand dollar computer. I think that's um, marvelous. You know, and I think more of that's a good thing yeah and it means that at nine dollars you can have one for every child in your classroom so schools now really can let every child in their school tinker with it it's just reached that price point to make tech accessible we just have to make sure that the support system is around to make sure that kids who want to learn or anybody who wants to learn you know there's a space for them to actually be able to understand what this does and how they can use it and where they can develop their skills from Mm. yeah i mean i think of uh you know as, as a child you know my brothers would make all sorts of they would do all sorts of little scientific experiments and you know, fiddling around with electronics and you know, we talked earlier about crystal set and you know, that was something you could make for next to nothing and it was so easy to do so kids did and it wasn't, it wasn't really a big deal. Uh, I'm kind of curious what would be the flow on effect of you know, kids being able to get a computer for $9 which is you know, the price of you know, a couple of days worth of lunch or whatever it is for, for um, you know, a, a typical child. It's, it makes it so accessible. I'm curious what sort of things that they're actually going to come up with and if we can get these into their hands. And um, Michelle, we, we talked earlier about, what was it, the UK you said, where uh, software development or programming is something that's yeah. just taught to every child in school? Yeah, so in the UK, as of last September, it became compulsory for all school children to learn to code. That's from the age of 5 through to 16. At the age of 11, all children are now expected to know two different languages in code, and there are five languages that they get to choose from meaning that there are nations out there who are creating computer literate generations and I you know I feel a little bit concerned that in New Zealand we're not even close to doing that because now you give them the coding language and the tech I mean they're way ahead of where we're going to be 10 years from now yeah well I would think you know with this type of technology if we were putting this into into children's hands along with you know teaching them you know coding from a young age the flow on impact of that with them coming out of school would be absolutely fantastic but the worry is if we're not what about resources like code.org and online so there are I mean so there are resources like that and you know there's code club for example which I'm involved which is great for setting up after school clubs Um, my charity MG Tech we teach basic coding to kids who are in lower decile areas so there are little things popping up but actually you're still only getting the kids there who really understand why they should be there it's how do we infiltrate the masses people don't realize that something is important for them until they need it and then by then it's too late so I just think we should change the curriculum and actually teach coding as a language um, just like we do other foreign languages languages it'll be better than latin anyway <laughs> probably a few more practical uh, practical uses I, I mean yeah i would be really fascinated in terms of what that flow on effect is going to be from mm. the uk if this mm. is just embedded in every single student that that type of thinking that type of mindset um to, to, and it's to, not just the computing capability it's the peripherals are getting cheap you know stepper motors and you know sensors and servos and all those other things are just getting cheaper and cheaper. Sparkfun is yep. a great website for all that and mindkits.co.nz mm. 
that stuff's just commodity product now and you can get it and hack around with it and if you break things it doesn't really matter and I think a good example of what might come from this if they do start flooding into schools is what you've seen happen with um, high schools with robotics competitions where when that stuff's made available to kids man you know there's nothing more innovative on the planet than a child with a things to tinker with and some time to do it and someone to encourage them you know we just don't have enough of it happening at the moment though do we no we don't it's it's very narrow teachers as well you know how to how to train them and not have them feel that you know they're in a classroom of people that know more about the topic than they do you know and that's okay i think we should change our mentality on the teacher should know everything i mean these kids are around tech all the time and we should create a curriculum that allows integrated learning in which if a kid knows more than the teacher that's fine you know it's all about learning together and i think we have this old school mentality of the person at the front needs to know everything and dictate to the you know let's just change the model ever so slightly and look our kids are growing up into a future of robotic systems where robots are going to take people's jobs so wouldn't you want to make sure you know how to build and program these robots to make yourself job secure I think we should uh, or be take pushing them down that. when they take over the planet. You know, <laughs> that, that. Yeah. so a nine dollar computer might come up with your new your new <laughs> system to take out the robots. <laughs> It'll do it just really slowly. Yeah, well, yeah, there could there could be something in that. Now, um, on a on a serious note, new gadgets. Uh, there's always new things flowing flowing in to to chat with. Uh, this week we've got uh, two new phones coming through from uh, Microsoft, which we previously referred to as. Uh, the Nokia, so the Lumia handsets, which were Nokia uh, Lumia, and uh, we've got uh, we've got a couple here. We've been having a little bit of a look at. Um, the first up is the Lumia four three five, which the one we've got is a little phone with a four inch screen. It's got a big green plastic uh, cover on it, which I guess the benefit of that is if you drop it, well, if you drop it at the right angle. Um, and it's got big corners that sort of stick out, so you're more than well. There's a reasonable chance it's going to land on one of the corners. It will be reasonably robust, a little bit like the old Nokia phones of um, yeah, 10, 15 years ago. I'm not quite sure happens what happens if you drop it on the glass though. Um, but the interesting thing about this is it's a, a Windows uh, smartphone, and it's launching here in New Zealand at an eighty-nine dollar price point. Which you know keeps bringing down that uh, you know that smartphone price. We've seen the Android handsets at the lower at the lower price points, but they tend to be a little bit uh, neutered or, or limited in terms of their uh, uh, operating system software and, and capabilities. This has got a very basic camera, but I mean, other than that, it's probably a, a reasonably capable uh, a reasonably capable phone. Michelle, do you think there are any? Good opportunities that come out of this from that uh, that learning perspective, being able to get these into into yeah. students' hands and and write software and so on as well. Look, it's the right size. It's robust. It's it's cheap looking but fun. You know, it looks like a Lego brick to be honest, and yeah. it's green color. <laughs> yeah. um, but at that price point, you can again introduce tech to kids who may not have access to smartphones. You know, we've got actually doing a lot of work with low decile schools. You realize that there is a whole generation growing up with smartphones and a whole generation that just aren't. And so it's great having stuff. At this price point so that kids all our kids can get access to it i, I mean it's not you know for a cheap phone it looks kind of funky it's it's you know it seems really functional i wouldn't buy it but you know i can see who would mm. and i guess the thing is with coming at that price point brett 
now. That's the launch price point. I think that's for a locked phone, so that's locked to a network. I think Vodafone are doing it. I'm not sure if any of the other networks are, are picking up on it. Um, I think it's $30 more if you want the un- unlocked version. But you can imagine come Christmas and sales and yeah, things, you'll be picking those up for 40 or $50, right? Yeah. And, and in fact, I think we've already seen those sort of prices in, uh, in the Australian market with some of these handsets. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd buy it just because of the green. Um, <laughs> but also the green probably mean it wouldn't get stolen very often. So... <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not a bad little phone. Um, eighty-nine yeah, bucks, pretty 89, cheap. Yeah. And if you've never used a Windows phone, I personally quite like the operating system on it. I, I love my iPhone, but I think, um, to be honest, I think aesthetically, Microsoft have done a better job. The iconic mm. layout grid layout of iOS is actually looking pretty old and clunky these days. So you want to try something new, and then if you don't like it, give it to your kids. It's not a bad That's idea. The one. Mm. Yeah. And then they've got a, a, a sort of a you know a couple of steps up in terms of price point. They've got the um, the bigger one there, which is the Lumia six forty, and that comes into the New Zealand market at two hundred and ninety nine. And it's got this you know a case that sort of in, comes around it as well, which is different to mo- most phone manufacturers that tend to have a back that's removable. I mean this is the back, but it comes right around it to really protect the the phone. And it feels a lot nicer as a handset. It's a five-inch screen, so it's similar to all of the yeah the top-end phones in screen size. When you know we look at Samsung and, and Apple and so on, um, it's an HD screen, so it's a you know it's a good enough resolution. It's um, you know got a, a reasonable um, eight-megapixel camera on there and a flash and so on. So um, yeah, that, I guess that's Microsoft sort of offering something that's sort of towards the mid-range, but still at a at a reasonable price point. So good to see those coming through. Um, now we've also got a tablet floating around there it's somewhere next to me. Um, now this is this is the new one from uh, from Samsung um, Galaxy Tab Active. Now it's got a 4G slot, so you can put your SIM card in it. So it can, yeah, you can totally operate off this thing uh, out and about. You've got waterproof, dustproof, and in theory, drop-proof. Now, I didn't put it through too much testing with that on this occasion. I can't do it now. <laughs> um, but it, it looks like a good sort of solid solid case on it. I think with, you know, what, their, what their target with this type of device is very much into businesses that need to have something that will work you know, everywhere out in the field and uh, you know, working, work sites and so on. You've got a stylus uh, popped in there. Yeah. So you know, it's, very, it's very flexible. Uh, I guess the, the thing for me is I'm, I'm curious how businesses are going in terms of their adoption of Android. Android, you know, still has, I guess, a few challenges from a security aspect to it. Uh, And this one is caught with one of the things we often see on Android devices. It doesn't have the latest operating system on it. So, um, you know, so you're you're on Android 4.4. Android 5 is is what's current. Um, Probably it will get a newer one, but it, ah, it it just seems... Launch a new product, bring out everything you can to to make it yeah. you know superb from from the get go. Um, the ecosystem like still doesn't, hasn't quite figured that stuff out with Android yet, has it? It's what you know Apple do a great job of because they own the whole thing. Microsoft's got a bit better at it. Though, and I mean, New Zealand Android's got the biggest market share by you know by yeah. far of, of mobile platforms, partly because of of price point. Uh, but I, st- I still think that you know there there are yeah I think businesses. And government are often still scared off around those security aspects with um, with with Android, but yeah, reality is any app you want for it, it's it's available Microsoft yeah. Office, um, you know, right through now. So you know, in those regards, you can't go too far wrong. 
And it's it looks sturdily made. I mean, there actually isn't a market for, you know, I'm an engineer, and so if I'm out on a construction site, for example, it's nice to have something that I don't mind getting the rain on or getting, you know, it's, you've seen New Zealand, it rains every fourth minute here. Or, you know, if I'm out somewhere to be able to take data on this, I think this is great to build something for the outdoor market yet business place. I mean, we're not all sitting in offices all day. So it's nice. It looks great. I think, yeah, I feel like we I want to drop it just to test it. Yeah, I think we should. Huh? Okay, um, here it goes. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. Oh. I'd have to pay for it, right, if I break it. Just, just, no, it's, well, we're not dropping it from a high height. So I think it's, you know, it's going to be reasonable. We're, what was the test that? I the I watch test was from four foot. Was that how they dropped? Did you see that video where they s- smashed the screen on the iWatch? Okay, so we're gonna hold okay, it. We're gonna hold go. out the Apple. We're gonna hold out the Apple Watch. Are you ready? <laughs> you have to drop it face down. Apparently, one, Here. two, three, go. Oh. Okay, I didn't. I, did, <laughs> I didn't drop the watch. Oh, um, okay, hold on. Let me pick it up. <laughs> Samsung does appear to have survived. Seems to have it's survived. Just, just fine. About the. Um, construction sites and things because when you look at that market for you know Panasonic have always had devices ruggedized devices and they're horrifically expensive um, by comparison to what a device without the ruggedization would would cost so something like that for two ninety nine and well, you can smack around a bit well if it were two ninety nine that that would be oh, well, that, that, that would be brilliant um, I was just trying to check what our what our local pricing is on the um, on the tab active here uh, I think it's Eight hundred US okay. is the figure okay. I'm 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 seeing. So there oh, there is a premium, but if you compare and and that was the comparison I wanted to do, is if you look at it compared to the Windows type devices, and you mentioned you know the Panasonic yeah. tough books or, or tough pads that they've they've got, they're like two um, then then pricey. they're really up at that next that next level pricing wise. And I think what's interesting here is Samsung, they have. They've they've sort of ticked the boxes from that robustness and waterproof, uh, yeah, perspective and so on, but without being, you know, totally off the charts in term yeah. in terms of price. So you know, I think there there is a there is a balance there, and I think it, at that sort of price point, that's where you know a lot of businesses might say, well, look, we might prefer the security of another operating system, etc. Mm-hmm. But actually, this is a price point that's a, that's that's accessible. So look, we can put a whole suite of these out for half the price. Of a Windows-based device, and no doubt in time we will see, you know, a, a Windows device with, um, uh, you know, that that probably competes directly with that. But there aren't a whole lot uh, of them that compete sort of price-wise at the moment. Of course, the funny, ironic thing is that for every one of these Samsung sales, Microsoft makes money anyway. Right? <laughs> Isn't that with, with their uh, patent fees and, and yeah, so on, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now. On to, on to other uh, discussions, we've got a budget coming out of Australia and supposedly what we're going to hear about is a bit of a, a levelling of the, the playing field uh, for those that are uh, providing services locally and those from outside the country. And I think this is going to be interesting to watch because we have similar challenges here in New Zealand to Australia. So uh, we've heard the term uh, Netflix uh, tax sort of bandied around and you know we've got the issue here in New Zealand which Spark have, have highlighted uh, because they compete with Netflix uh, with their Lightbox service and that when they sell Lightbox for um, whatever it's, it's prices at the moment I've, I forgot it was about $12 or something yeah. um, they, then you know there's GST component in there that they're paying but when you buy Netflix 
uh, Netflix are an unfair advantage because they're selling it in from offshore. They they don't ha- I guess have a have a New Zealand entity that's involved in that. Uh, there's no no GST being collected. The the other challenges we have are around all those purchases that people make on eBay and and online where things are just shipped in directly. There's there's no GST on those. So you know again it's easier for me to buy off somebody selling from China than it is from somebody selling locally say on trade me uh, because I'm not paying the GST component and then we've got the big discussion that's been going on for some time uh, around the, the international firms the Microsofts and Googles and uh, and so on maybe maybe Vodafone uh, etc that uh, as global companies they uh, I guess make what you what would you call it, Brett? They, they make particular decisions around uh, what they legally can get away with yeah, around how they how they report points. how they report their profits. Um, but you know, realistically, uh, they're they're working out what is the yeah what's the mechanism that uh, minimizes how much tax they have to pay in any given country. Yeah, yeah and, and of course, you know, based on the um, maximizing return to shareholders, they're, they're almost they're obligated to to do that. And it's it's a really interesting topic. There's a whole bunch of things moving at the same time there's you know you talk about um the unfair advantage stuff there's you know atoms versus bits it's if you're importing things items um you know there's a 400 dollar um threshold at the moment over which they'll charge a gst that's right they could lower that to 200 dollars, but i would imagine the volume of things would go up you know by a factor of 10 how many customs people or whoever it is do they need to hire to administer that so so that gets tricky and and i think the um the point that um, spark raise around um, Netflix and that. I, I think there's definitely a, a point in that and I think uh, you're going to talk to any Kiwi retailer and they'll tell you how they're getting hammered black and blue by online retail but by the same measure I think a lot of people that are signing up for Netflix aren't looking at going oh gee I'm getting that for GST or no GST on it, that's not really what they're signing, what's causing them to sign up so there's a bit of a um, sleight of hand going on in that I don't think that's really the what's caused bringing competitive pressure on, is it unfair? Y- yeah it is you know, um, but it's not necessarily that they're losing customers as, as a direct result of that. I guess um, it's part of the picture, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is part of the picture. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's interesting in all of this is, you know, I think you know, anecdotally, everyone's always got a story to tell about how slow government moves. Uh, but boy, watch them move when it comes to making sure they're getting all their tax money. Everything seems to work at a, a very different pace the minute that tax revenues under threat. You know, so. Well, but but it has been going on for out. some time, hasn't it? And I think yeah, the challenge has been working out how do that, yeah, how do they solve it? And there is a point where, as New Zealanders, we're we're missing out as well because if it's if it's not in balance and there's a lot of money yeah. that's going off offshore, be it to a, a Microsoft or a Google or an Apple or or whoever it is, uh, I mean, yeah, it become it becomes a, a, a negative situation for yeah for our economy. If those figures, if there's a big variance, and you know, I think a lot of people would say, well, there is a huge variance to the the amount of money that goes to those firms and the amount of tax that they they pay locally. Yeah, I, I think it will be interesting to watch the whole thing play. And then you know, there's the whole topic of different differences in prices between if you buy a product locally off the vendor versus parallel importing and what there's some interesting stuff about to happen in that space. What, as yeah, well. what's so, appropriate, what's fair. Yeah, yeah. and, and um, none of them are doing anything illegal. Um, the government has set all of those mechanisms up for those companies. They're, they're utilising them in a way that it's not like there's a um, the law of unintended consequences has kicked in. Everyone knew how these things were going to play out. Um, figuring out how to get the genie back in the bottle will be tricky. 
Um, and I wouldn't want to be the government that tries to tell people that their online purchases are about to get taxed more or whatever it might be. So I think it is a really fine balancing act. But having said that, you only have to walk through retail in a lot of towns these days and they're dying. You know, they're finding it really hard. And, and to be perfectly frank, the first cab out, out of that rank was Trade Me. They were the ones that, and are still caning a lot of retailers. Um, and, and the world's changing. And it's, you know, I think we are seeing a, a world where, um, you know, bricks and mortar retail is going to, parts of it will die. It'll be reinvigorated and reborn in a different, different way. But I think we're just going through a cycle. It's one of those things. And it's also, look, we live in this global economy and, and I understand that we have to collect taxes in New Zealand, but there's also the story for local companies to produce a pressure to support local. I don't mind spending extra money if you give me a reason. If you have a story and saying, look, this money goes here, we are providing a better product, I will spend the extra money um, to go with a New Zealand company versus uh, an overseas one, a US one, for example, because I like to buy local. So I think part of it also is there needs to be some storytelling within New Zealand for who you should support and why and where your money is going. And I don't think that's told as well, especially in Lightbox. You know, I think we're not selling it as well as we could be inside. It's like going to a retail store. You go there not to buy the product. You go there for the experience. Okay, so I don't mind spending more in a shop where there's experience with that, where there's customer service or somebody helps me pick out and make a decision. I'll pay for that feature. But if I know what I want and I can buy it cheaper online, I will do that too. So I think brick and tile places are great but you you've got to remember what people are paying for and they're paying for the story the experience you know you're paying extra for all those service things that come on it and so how do we in this global economy make sure that new zealand companies are protected by helping them to share their story and we've we've got a bit of a i guess a a two-edged sword in new zealand for instance with the consumer guarantees act I think you know that's a real benefit to consumers buying a product here. And you look at, for instance, the Microsoft uh, Surface. Uh, I think in New Zealand that comes with a with a two year warranty, which is I think a reflection of the Consumer Guarantees Act. But if you were to bring one back from the US, yeah. you you would have a, a yeah a one year warranty. And yeah, so there's actually a benefit buying locally. But if that doesn't you know if that flows onto a much much higher price then that might be negative. But on a lot of those products, actually, it w- works out much better to buy it locally. Um, so there's some interesting you know, mixes there, but it depends on the type of product you're buying, I suppose, whether whether that comes into the equation. And just to throw a left-field curveball into this, the whole smart locker thing that's happening is really interesting too, right? So um, eventually, be it Amazon or some, someone will have um, you know, hardened locker space all dotted around Auckland City, and you'll order your product from Amazon and it'll turn up one of those lockers but the next step of course is they sit on top of all this data and they'll know that on a wet and rainy Friday from you know midday to 2pm that 15 people are going to buy the latest version of the iPhone um, and they will have pre-populated those lockers already and so that's going to become retail as well so there's a lot of I think a huge amount of stuff to play out in this space I think what you'll Mm. actually see you know five years down the track is actually a lot more food places because that does work really, really well in all of those empty retail things, and there'll be, I think, that will change. But um, I think, as I said, you know, the genie's well and truly out of the bottle. I think you make a really good point, Michelle, around the whole um, service thing, and I think people need to lift their thinking about what the retail experience feels like, both physically being there, but even the use of technology to enhance that, you know, go into the VR stuff, but even mm. friends shopping together at the same store but in different cities, how do you 
share that experience and shift vouchers between them. And I, I don't think the retail industry's even scratched that surface yet. So there's there's a lot of stuff to play at in this at the moment. Yeah, I, a lot of pain too. So. Yeah, I agree. I actually, when I was uh, when I was overseas, I made a point to use the Amazon Locker in Los Angeles because other um, yeah, I hadn't had a chance to try it previously, and you know. It was actually more convenient for me to do it that way than to have it shipped to where I was staying and have the chance that yeah. uh, where I was staying was a was an Airbnb. It was a home. I wasn't necessarily going to be at at the house when the delivery came. If it was a courier, so you know that was one of you know, Amazon's advances. It just made so much sense. You know, to me, it was quite convenient. So I just picked up my purchases on the way to the airport and uh, you know was done with it. It was great. All right, now autonomous trucks. Brett, this was something that you suggested yeah. we, uh, we, we discuss uh, today. Now, the first truck has been, um, has been approved for going on the roads in the, uh, in the US. Yes, yeah, so I suggested this for a few reasons. One is that I just love the idea of something that weighs, I don't know, how much does a truck weigh? 20 tonne, hurtling down a freeway in the middle of the night with snow blowing everywhere and written along the side of it, you know, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> um, but I think autonomous vehicles intrigue me. Um, I saw a guy by the name of Tony Sieber present a while back, and he talked about the fact that the average car is only utilised 4% of its time. The rest of it, it's parked somewhere, um, sometimes on the southern motorway in Auckland. Um, <laughs> and the other um, statistic that amazed me was that um, if you have a fleet of autonomous vehicles driving together through a given point in, on a motorway, let's say, you can squeeze up to seven times as much traffic through that point as um, as you can if um, humans are driving those vehicles and so the the potential for autonomous vehicles to really change um, transportation but actually even get us to a point where uh, we have less roading required because we're utilising um, what's available in a far more efficient manner uh, is, is interesting and then of course the whole thing around just the um, what's happening with electric vehicles and we were talking before the, we kicked the show off about where the oil industry is going and you know there's a very real possibility that 20 years down the track um, there won't be internal combustion engines those companies that produce them and you know the Fords and the GMs and that won't be in business anymore um, and that we, we may not you know use oil at all except for plastic but as Michelle made a very good point I don't think we need that anymore either. I mean, there's so many plastics now being made out of natural materials, so sugarcane and corn and other examples that I'm not convinced we'll need oil for much longer. And you talked about, you know, some of those Detroit companies maybe going out of business. But I think one of the nice things that um, Elon Musk has done is made all the Tesla patents open. And so he's doing that so they don't, right? He's doing that so they can catch up and create something competitive. So I just hope that they catch on quick enough to be able to just take these current patents nowhere and develop something new so we're all competing in the same renewable market. I think around um, electric and autonomous vehicles, we're at this real inflection point. Um, and I think the um, opening up the patent portfolio was a stroke of genius. And that beautiful thing did with knocking the wall down with all the plaques yeah. was fantastic. But... Yeah. Um, because it sped the whole thing up by ten years, just that one move yeah, sped everything it? up. Um, it, it, the, you know, the, there is no way they can it can be reined back in at all, um, and the the technology itself is just going ahead in leaps and bounds. And I, you know, I guarantee we'll sit here in twenty years' time, book it in, actually send a meeting invite out, and we'll get <laughs> back here. Um, and and I really do think that we are going to be sitting. We'll reminisce on those times that we used to drive cars. Yeah. 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 Well, that's the other thing. I read a great quote the other day that said that kids of today. There are kids born, you know, alive today that will never drive a car. 
That's great, though, isn't it? I'm all for it. And when I talk to people about, you know, self-driving cars and things, there seems to be this fear of the unknown. And I think once you understand the technology behind, like, I don't have a fear. I want want a car to drive me around, you know, and I want to be able to share that car with the world because I only need it to go to work and back, really, and maybe an event at night. I'll probably use it three or four times a day. Why on earth is it sitting waiting for me? You know, you could just have, I would love a carpool car that knows my schedule, knows what time I'm at work, can work out the most efficient way to be used over a year. And we're pretty regular creatures, most of us. So I, I'm all for it. And I think people are afraid of the unknown. Um, I've been doing a lot of research in the autonomous cars, and I'm, I'm 100% for it. And I, we, why are we not having this now, you know? Yeah. I think the thing that's going to hold it back is actually legislation, not tech. And I, I would like to think that New Zealand can be one of those sort of countries that moves ahead quite quickly. I think, yeah, there has been a little bit of interest here locally around uh, drones, for instance. And you know, it'd be great if we could be a place where these things move quite quickly and, you know, the rest of the world can have a little bit of a look in and companies can come and, you know, come and test things out here. Because if we look at, the you know, the technology of autonomous cars, it's mostly there already. And when we look at how bad as people we are at driving vehicles, it's actually not a big step to deliver an autonomous car that is safer than than what we drive today, right? So, yeah, I would I would hope we don't have to actually wait too long for this well, stuff to, to think land. Well, legislation points are a really good one. I, I think it will freak a lot of people out. Um, just just the concept behind it. Um, but, you know, the reality is that when it happens and it will happen, um, you know, the, the car insurance industry will vanish because they'll stop running into each other, which, you know, humans seem to have an incredible propensity for doing. Although I was reading an interesting article the other day around some of the ethical things. Of course, if you've got a huge fleet of these vehicles travelling down the southern motorway and, I don't know, someone hurls a rock off a overpass, all of those cars will know about it and they could make group decisions around how they move the cars so the smallest number of people get killed. Now imagine if you're in a situation where your car wasn't going to get hit and you killed, but the whole group decided actually it's only one person in your car and the other car that was going to get hit has got a family of five, will wipe Paul out instead of the family of five. That's interesting. But the next step is, what if you could buy insurance for that? I don't ever want my car to to move, change, or put me in a position of, of endangerment as a, you know, in a, in a fleet situation like that. So there's actually a whole bunch of ethical things that come into this as well. well. I teach engineering ethics at university, and so we have to debate this all the time. Is one life worth more than another? Yeah. You know, would you protect the president of a country versus, a, you know, would you protect a fireman versus a civilian? These decisions are being made all the time by big corporates, so I don't think it would be any different. Yeah, there's some there's some very interesting discussion points there. Now, um, Brett, in the article that you you sent through, it was in the New Scientist. There, I, I was interested to read that you know we've now got farms that are using autonomous grain harvesters and uh, planters, and uh, Rio Tinto in Australia have 50 self-driving uh, vehicles hauling iron ore around uh, one of their sites in in Western Australia. So, I guess in those locations. The, you know, we don't have to wait for the legislation, yeah. so they're just getting on and doing it. And they're, you know, that, they're deciding to, better um, bang for buck. Yeah, well, they aren't they just about to get a train going as well in the outback, mm. carting stuff autonomously? The train drivers earn two hundred and twenty thousand Australian dollars a year or something, and have always been, you know, um, unionised. I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, um, you know, and hard to work with and negotiate, you know, hard union, and so they're going to remove them and they might just be the first example hmm. of, of humans losing their jobs in a, in a big way to to robots I mean there's welding robots and other things now but 
Um, and this is going to happen quickly. This isn't going to take 50 years to play out. And those are the those are the d- discussions I'm interested in and a bit concerned about in terms of what happens as we as we start you know automating more more and more and more. We'd, I guess we're just going to have to figure out what are, what other things to be doing with ourselves because yep. there's always something to do, right? Um, but but there I I can see there being you know there being some concern about this, but there's no way we can stop it, right? The te- the technology's there, the technology's smart enough to do all these things, uh, and yeah, nations need to remain competitive. So these things are going to going to push ahead, aren't they? Yeah, we're heading to an age where there will be you know less jobs than there are people, and. I actually think it's a bit of a renaissance. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we, you know, um, going out on a limb here, that, that as more and more, you know, as robots and particularly artificial intelligence takes a lot of jobs, um, you see more people getting into the arts. I think um, governments have to think differently around, you know, universal minimum um, incomes for people, you know, not the dole, but actually there will be situations where people don't, you know, work, quote, unquote, but might be doing social work or community work or... or art or whatever it might be so we're heading into a really interesting time you know as we always have been with tech you know and as always i'll be terrible at predicting what really happens but it's going to be interesting (laughs) oh definitely interesting um now uh, spark sent through some information today around their their statistics and they're always you know quite cautious on what they show so i you know tend to ask for a lot more information than what they're willing to uh willing to reveal but what they've been highlighting is the growth in data usage over the last uh, three three months so looking from uh, february this year through to april they're saying a 29 percent um, increase in usage over the three months now there's a little bit of a red herring in this if you if you look back in their historical data uh, january there was actually higher higher usage uh, in in terms of uh, you know downloads across their network than there was in February, but yeah, February, March, April, it just seems to have um, yeah gone not quite straight up, but that's pretty uh, pretty strong growth over that uh, that period, and you know they're pinning that back to uh, Lightbox, Netflix, you know streaming services and so on. Does does look as though we're uh, we're jumping into that that time where uh, where people are, are getting it, and I know a lot of our listeners have been using Netflix and these types of services for you know a very very long time, but it does seem as though mainstream New Zealand now uh, gets this concept of on demand content when you want it, where you want it, yeah, you know, forget the ads, and it's all uh, all accessible or reasonably low cost. Is that your your pick on it, Michelle? You only need to have a child in your house to know that they don't watch TV, right? They're all YouTubing, and I mean, they're all on demand now. I mean, I don't know what the TV industry are going to do, but I, I'm not convinced this next generation coming through are even going to turn a TV on. Um, I think it's great. I think that, you know, the more data people can get and the more information people can get on things is, is fantastic. And the fact that New Zealand is, you know, really taking this up on a national scale, I'm all for it. Yeah, I think it's a great thing. I mean, the more the merrier. You know, I'd like to see those numbers double and triple. You know, it's um, and it's always been the way with the internet. You know, if you make more capacity available, it's like traffic. You know, it'll get filled up, um, and that's a good thing. And, you know, we need we need more of that. I'd love to see where they tell you each each month how many ones and how many zeros get used. I think that's <laughs> <quite interesting. laughs> 
Yeah, well, that, we could we could probably break that down if uh, if you like. But uh, yeah, I was I was um, yeah keen to see whether we could get a bit a bit more of a breakdown on 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 where that where that goes. But uh, of course, all of these things tend to be uh, tend to be trade trade secrets. So there, there wasn't um, there wasn't a, a whole lot more uh, detail there, un, un, unfortunately. Um, now on other other topics. Um, now we've oh, we were gonna, we were going to talk a little bit about Force Touch. Um, this is something when we we talked about the new MacBook from Apple a couple of a uh, couple of weeks or so so back. And one thing we didn't talk about was the the Force Touch trackpad that it's got. And that was because I hadn't noticed that it had Force Touch, and I must have read about it, but I hadn't sort of del- delved into it. And uh, since then, I've got myself a bit more au fait with, uh, with Force Touch. Michelle, would you like to maybe give us a little bit of an explanation of, the, of how it works, or would you like to explain the technology? Yeah, I'll do both? a little bit of both. Okay, thank you. So Force Touch is, if you have a trackpad on it, you, you're used to that clicking function. So when you push on it, you feel it push in, and you hear the click, and you're satisfied that something happened, and then you see something respond on the screen. Pretty much Force Touch does that or makes you think you've done the same thing apart from you're not pushing anything. So it's all software-based. And what they've done is they've created this thin layer which has um, silver nanowires in there basically to make it conductive. And it can work out how much pressure you are putting on the system, so how much force you're applying, not by measuring the force, but by measuring the conductivity from your finger. So the harder you push, the more surface area your finger's having with the conductive surface. So it knows you're pushing harder. And then it has a feedback mechanism that seems to trick your brain to feel like it's clicked. So then you either stop pushing or you can then choose to push further. Now, underneath this conductor film are some actual sensors, which are the secondary touch base. So now you can do two functions within one push. So push it soft. You have one function, push it harder, have another function. One is mechanical. One is totally conductive software based. It's really clever. And you start to wonder how many things now you can do with a click. Remember how a click was just a click? It was a one on off one zero thing. Now you can click once and it can be a multitude of things based on that pressure so it's nice it feels nice you know and then you realize how geeky and techy it is they've totally changed the way they they've built this um the trackpad so the old one used to have four actual sensors underneath the trackpad so this is very different than that and gives you so many more features just on a single trackpad and that you can click you can move you can do all the same thing different conductor film this time but you wouldn't know it as a consumer no it's beautiful yeah i mean it got me when when you know i realized that i wasn't actually pushing the trackpad down and that click it was all being faked basically you know in the uh in the haptic feedback and so i I took the the macbook around the office and and just asked yeah other people look is that you know is that trackpad going down when you click on it and everyone was you know was as convinced as i'd been before i you know realized what i was doing Mm -hmm. that actually no that's not happening at all and then having you know within um within some of the apple software you've got those varying sort of layers you push down a bit further and and what you're uh you know i had my pointer over um over over a file name and as i i pushed you know i did the click and then i kept a little bit more pressure started giving me a preview of it and then i pushed hard enough then I got to the second click it was you know it was like you could you were really pushing it down further and then you know the the preview of the whole item came up um it was very very cool actually to to know that this is all just a bit of uh 
nanowires and some, and some software some, confusing some, you to make you think it's physical. Smarts. It's yeah. pretty cool. It's pretty I cool. because I've got this mental picture of you having a travel of about three feet as you figure <laughs> goes down. But, but think about I'm guessing it's probably cheaper to make, maybe. Oh, yeah, way cheaper uh, and less mechanical parts to fail. that was the second thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. it makes the machine more reliable. You know, amazing. Yeah. And this, I think they're just prototyping this technology. I think we're going to see the silver nanowire technology and the rumours are that they're buying a lot of this tech now into our screens, so into our touch screens. Going to ask, so you put it over glass? Yeah, you can, you can put it over glass, but better than that, you can put it over plastic. Um, so right now, if you look at any touch screen, so your iPad or, or whatever you've got, um, it's all done under what we call an ITO film, Indian Tin Outside. That's the standard. It's been the standard for ages. The limit with that is it has to be on glass, and it has to be quite a thick sheet of glass, and it's quite a thick sheet of ITO. Um, but when you're on a touch screen, you want your conductive part to be see-through, transparent, and as thin as possible because you want your device to be as light and as thin as possible. Um, and the problem with ITO is that actually the only real place that we can mine it from is China, and there was a bit of a shortage and that caused a big problem. Silver we can get from anywhere. Um, I think we're going to move away from ITO. I think we're going to see this nanotech of silver in all of our touch screens very, very soon. So now you're going to have touch sensitivity on your iPad, for example, on your tablet, on your laptop screen, and have these functions by touching the screen Screen. I think it's really going to change. Um, and also, silver nanowires are much easier to make. So, if you have an ITO film, you have to do it by what we call plasma des- deposition. It's really hard, it's high temperature, it costs a lot of money, you need a lot of expensive equipment. You can do solution-based coatings of silver nanowires. You can fire lasers um, at room temperature, just make them stick. There's a lot of cheaper ways of doing it, and the resource is much easier to get hold of. So I think it might be the end of the day, sadly, for ITO films as we know it. And that's pretty much in every device you have right now. And this force touch is opening the door to creating something very, very different for all of our touchscreens so that now they have pressure touch. Mm. It's silver nanowires antibacterial. Uh, so silver nanoparticles are antibacterial. Yeah. Um, the nanowires themselves being longer in shape are not as antibacterial okay. as... So it's to do with the shape. So the round ones, nanoparticles, are very antibacterial. Mm. The long ones don't seem to have the same effect, but we still don't really understand why they're antibacterial. Like, we we know they are. It's not just silver. We have gold. We have um, iron oxide is all antibacterial. We're not convinced why, but it's definitely when it's a round shape, it seems to have more of an effect. Mm, that is cool, and um, the Apple Watch is also incorporating that mm. uh, that technology it's too. It's very styly over there. Well, you know, there. there weren't too many options available for uh, for for purchase, so um, yeah. Although, I, did you see that video on YouTube where they drop it and it smashes the screen, and it was just like that gut. Every iPhone owner knows that horrible <laughs> moment. And it was the same. And I just thought, why didn't they use it? Why didn't they use sapphire? Like, why didn't they use a different glass? It's not a large surface area. So there's a story about the sapphire thing where they'd actually um, gone out and negotiated with the company to yeah. do sapphire screens for the watches. Mm. The company had geared up, purchased yeah. millions of dollars worth of equipment, and then business. Apple backed out of the contract. Right. I don't know why they didn't. I mean, there was obviously a reason behind it. But even if we... So if we move to these silver nanowires, there's no reason why it needs to be glass anymore. So the difference with... Um, get back to the ITO films is you have to do it on a flat surface. Now we can have curved, round. You could have a tablet that you could fold in half. You could roll up and put in your pocket. Um, flexible screens are something that we haven't seen. I thought we'd see it five years ago. We still haven't seen. But I think once we move to these silver nanowires, you know, you could have a whole flexible watch. You're... Um, Apple Watch over there is still very 
hard and rigid, right? It's still mm. a real clunky watch, and I think there's a lot of scope for change. I don't think Apple would, would like the clunky reference to them. It's better. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of clunky. No, it's really clunky. I mean, it it, it <laughs> is a drop it. Just it it is a pretty ch- it is a pretty you know chunky device if you look at it. Yeah. You know, compared to what else is on the market, uh, or you know, compared to more you know traditional watches, it is yeah. definitely a, a you know a bigger, bulkier bit. I mean, of kit, it's nicer than the Pebble. It's not as cl- you know. And it's still and it's doing a lot more, right? right? But, um, but yeah, call, call it what you like. It's generation one. And I want to um, know. What, so what you could do then with flexible stuff is actually make the band itself conductive. And now you've got the tech across yeah. a band as opposed to still on an old fashioned mm. screen. We just haven't seemed to move to that next level. There has been a bit of that with some of the some of the smart bands and, and watches actually. On front of other wearables, you were saying last time about there not being any wearables that were at all girly. For girls. Um, on, this on, is nice. I on like my this. other wrist, <laughs> I was wearing, um, what well, in this case, I will call it girly today. Um, because it's beautiful. That one has had quite a bit of quite a bit of interest from people. In fact, even um, when when I spent a little bit of time in the queue and I gave up on queuing uh, for for an Apple Watch and um, <laughs> uh, found another way around the process in um, in Los Angeles. Um, but um, this this what Michelle's looking at is um, Huawei's uh, Talk Band, and this is a is is actually quite a stylish looking uh, wearable. What is this bit? It's a weird sticky out bit. I've just so pulled it apart as I usually I'll, do. I'll, I'll, She's I'll, broken it. I'll show you. So, I've pretty much broken everything um, here today. <laughs> listeners obviously can't can't see this, but um, you've got the steel looking wearable bit. And I think we might have talked about this last week, but it is quite cool. Comes out, and this becomes your little Bluetooth earpiece if you oh, if you need to clever. use one. So, so it disconnects watch. from the um, from the from the leather watch strap and the the nice sort of surround. And you clip it in, do your Bluetooth calls, and then you put it back in. And the other benefit of this that I didn't even click of click on as a benefit until recently is that if you have one of those Bluetooth things, it's another thing to charge and to think about yep. and so on. And whenever I've had some sort of Bluetooth mm. thing um, yeah, like this, you know, you'll forget. But because this is that you're wearing it all day, and it's actually out of the way. You take it off when you go to bed, and that becomes a convenient time then to plug it in for charging if it needs it. But Jeez. it actually will last for about you know, four days, depending on your usage, without needing to be charged. Um, wow. That said, the Apple Watch, which supposedly has 18 hours battery life, I think when I looked at it before, after wearing it, uh, you know, all day today, uh, it's still at 68. percent So. Yeah, the battery life depends on how long you use it. So in my current mm. usage today, you're definitely going to be able to get a, a lot more than the 18 hours that they, they rated at. So and more if you have tattoos, you know how it... <laughs> so you could use it forever. So back to this talk band thing, right? It's it's beautiful. It's sleek. I would wear this. This is one of the few things I would actually wear. And one of the things that you may not realise is it's got this shiny mirror surface, making it instantly a mirror to check your lipstick on. Girls. Oh really? <laughs> I don't have a watch like that. That's beautiful. <laughs> it is quite fascinating. I think it's a better looking um, device than the Apple Watch. Yeah, I think it is too. And I'm a real Apple fan. I hate saying that out loud, <laughs> but it is stunning. It, this is this is where it needs to go. This is the direction it needs to go in. This is a beautiful watch. Yeah, initially that was a bit too sort of blingy for me. There was a very plain black one, but <laughs> nothing's too blingy for um, you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, but I've actually, I've actually. After hearing so many other people, because I'm used to wearing these techie sort of gadgets, yeah. and this is d- decidedly un-techy. It's, it is much more of a, a fashion type accessory. I had so many people tell me how great it looks. It um, does. That, um, 
yeah, I'm, I've become a lot more comfortable with, uh, with wearing it. So there, there you go. Brush your girliness. <laughs> Check your lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, I think that there, were, there, was, there was one more thing to discuss, actually, that I did, I did want to discuss. This was, this was a curious one, um, but it just, just fascinated me. Um, this has been something that's been going on for a while, is that you can go online and buy a little uh, amplifier um, that will basically pick oh, up yeah. those sort of remote commands to um, or there's a pro- you know w- when you jump into certain cars Prius and there's a whole bunch of of, um, of of vehicles that use this this type of sensor um, it tells that you're very close to the vehicle and so it unlocks the vehicle lets you start the engine etc etc you know you don't put the keys into the into the you know the car anymore it's just a proximity sensor um, but now what um, what I heard and there was a discussion on uh, Geek Zone about this in the last couple of weeks that is what um, reminded me of it is you can go online eBay, Amazon and the like and you can get a little pocketable um, amplifier that will effectively mean somebody that's maybe sitting inside the house or inside their office with a key in their pocket um, will actually be able to amplify that communication back to the vehicle, and you could be outside the vehicle and open up the vehicle, and uh, you know if Drag there away. are valuables in there, the drive away may may vary in terms of the amplification, and depending on what the vehicle does when it realizes the key's no longer within range. But um, it's a bit of a concern, isn't it? So this story's actually been in play for probably a couple of years. There mm. was some stories flying around a while back of. Um, high-end cars being opened by people with a small box. No one can yes. figure out what, it, what yeah. it was. So it's probably people that are home-brewing those things themselves. Um, if I had one of those, the last thing I'd steal with it would be a Prius. <laughs> um, just seems like a complete waste They've of They've got technology. new models. Have you seen their new shapes? They've got some yeah. nice new Priuses. There's some valuable out. batteries inside. So there's probably a good, yeah, there's probably, uh, you know, five or ten K worth of batteries if you open up a, a, a new Prius. And Yeah, that's a good point, actually. There's, a, there's I think, a wide article about this same thing um, and the worrying thing is just how incredibly insecure um, the technology is mm. um, because there's no way short of recalling all of those vehicles all of those key fobs that they can fix it. And there's a lot of issues around security isn't there where, where you know, companies will jump on board with, with some technology and just completely forget about any of the security implications. Uh, there was one the other day around a, um, a a uh, drug pump that you know oh, make yeah. sure you get the your, most your, your, your IP your, device. Ever. That's it. Yeah, um, you know it's supposed to make sure you get the right dosage at the right time, um, but it, but it was such that it could be completely completely messed with, and so uh, yeah, I, I think it, you know it seems as though the 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 companies that are using technology need to look a little bit more broadly around the security aspects because often they they're just entirely uh, forgotten about. Yeah, but don't leave your valuables in your car, I think, is a lesson, no matter where you are. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Well, I have learned that one in the past, so um, hopefully I've, I've learned it well enough. So there we go. All right, well, um, that's been great. I really in- enjoyed chatting. Thank you very much for coming in, Brett. 
and Michelle. Thanks for having me again. Now, where do we track you down online, Michelle? We know we see you a little bit around, or a lot, on uh, (laughs) on on TV and various other forms of uh, media. But um, where's where's the best place to track you? Is it Twitter? Uh, You can pretty much um, use the username Emmy Dickinson anywhere. So my hashtag for um, my website is emmydickinson.com. I'm Emmy Dickinson on Twitter. I'm um, Emmy Dickinson on Facebook. You can, yeah, or just Google Nano Girl and you'll find me. Excellent. Thank you. And Brett? Uh, the easiest thing for me is just Twitter, so at Brett Roberts, um, and that's me. And there's always fascinating things coming from uh, from you on your <laughs> on your social uh, platforms. So, um, yeah. All right. Thank you very much. We'll look forward to... Uh, Look forward to catching you again on another occasion. Uh, listeners can track down the NZ Tech Podcast at nztechpodcast.com. And we're, of course, on Twitter mostly, and but on uh, Facebook and so on. And uh, you can find me, Paul Spain, on, uh, on those platforms as well. All right, we'll catch you next week. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT.